The purpose of Lent is to be a season of fasting, self-denial, Christian growth, penitence, conversion, and simplicity. Lent comes from the Germanic word for springtime. And it can be viewed as a spiritual spring cleaning, a time for taking spiritual inventory and then cleaning out those things which hinder our corporate and our personal relationships and our relationship with Jesus Christ and our service to Him. So let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we enter another week of our Lenten journey, we ask that You would guide us on the path that leads to You. Fill our hearts with gratitude, with patience, with strength, and with peace as we strive to become the best versions of ourselves, honestly admitting our shortcoming and our sins. As we renew our resolve each day to become better people, let us hear your voice in the deepest reaches of our hearts. Give us rest, rest that can only be found in you. Help us to accept others. Help us to show them your great love instead of casting judgment. And stay with us through the busy days that this week brings to us and remind us that when we need comfort and solitude, wisdom or guidance, we can always turn to you. Help us develop discipline and generosity through fasting and charity, almsgiving through generosity, and come closer to you through prayer this Lent. It is in the strong name of your Son that we pray together. Amen and amen. If you have a Bible with you, feel free to turn now to Matthew chapter or Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible but you want to read uh, one with real pages, like, um, like I do, you're welcome to choose one. Our ushers have some for you, so just lift your hand up. We also have Bibles in, uh, in Spanish, if that is your heart language. Or if you're practicing Spanish, you can read along there. But we will read in Luke chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse 1. So would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word tonight? About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. But the gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and so together we say, thanks be to God. 
Nothing like the certainty of death to start us off. Happy Lent, everyone. I will admit that this text is an odd one. And it's especially an odd if you read it alone, just like we did, parachuting in without any kind of context or direction. Um, Because Jesus' life was like ours, in that each moment built on the previous moment, and each conversation carries something into the next conversation, and each relationship and event shapes us as we go along. And so because of this, it's nearly impossible to jump into any one isolated portion of Jesus' words and get a decent idea of what's going on. So before we really talk about what on earth is happening in the words that Jesus just said, I want to take us back a little ways and trace the story of Jesus as it's given to us through the writer Luke. So Luke writes in a very different way, in a very particular way to the other gospel writers. And beginning with Jesus's wilderness experience in chapter 4, which we heard the first Sunday of Lent several weeks ago, Luke gives us this picture of a Jesus who is steadfast and uncompromising. He is resolute. He is sure of himself, and he is also sure of his opponents. In fact, we get the impression that he knows them many times better than they know themselves. He doesn't bicker over semantics, and he doesn't even try to win over his critics. He knows who he is, he knows where he's going, and he won't be deterred. And while we may read Jesus as someone who was always preaching eternal truths and trying to get people into heaven, although that is not untrue, Luke is also careful to show us a Jesus who cares deeply about the now of Israel's present situation. And maybe this is why the mysterious wisdom of the lectionary text has this portion of scripture, which is the beginning of Luke chapter 13, coming after last week's text, which for those of you who heard Pastor Andrea preach at the end of Luke chapter 13, because at the end of Luke chapter 13, we see Jesus' invisible grief over what will happen to Jerusalem. He sees very clearly the storyline played out, even if people can't see it for themselves. Jesus not only has in mind an eternal reality that affects us here in 2019 and those folks back in the 30s AD and everywhere in between, but he also has very much in mind the particular crisis of Israel in AD 32, He sees where their nationalistic and ethnocentric ideals are leading them. He knows what will happen if their penchant for violence and oppression doesn't stop. And just a mere 40 years after Jesus' ministry, Jerusalem was, in fact, completely demolished by the Romans, wiped out, decimated. Because... The Romans were fed up with this unruly group of people who just wouldn't submit to their rule and settle down. But Jesus' concerns, as we see them in Luke, are not just political. He's not just a political activist. In fact, he seems most grieved by and most vocally opposed 
to the oppressive and unjust and self-serving nature, not just of the political leaders, but more importantly, the religious leaders. In all of this, we see a Jesus who is painfully aware and always attempting to correct people's grievous misperceptions of God as both avenger-in-chief and moral scorekeeper. And so by the time we get to chapter 13, Jesus has made plenty of enemies, both on the political front and on the religious. And Luke paints a picture of a man who knows what his fate is and is ready for it when it comes. He has set his face to Jerusalem, Luke says. And so the bulk of Luke's story of Jesus happens in the context of Jesus' slow journey to Jerusalem, marching on with a message of hope, but also marching toward his death. And the immediate backdrop for the story we read today is a post-dinner party conversation, just a little light banter, you know, after dinner. Jesus was invited to uh, the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And at the end of that dinner party, the conversation gets a little heated. I'm sure you can imagine why. And apparently, while they were at dinner, there was a crowd gathering in the streets outside, waiting for Jesus when he got out. And so he leaves the dinner party, and he's standing somewhere out there in the town or nearby and talking to people. And he begins to teach them for quite a long time. The discourse takes up um, more than a chapter in Luke's writing. And then suddenly, um, he's in the middle of talking about being ready for the day of God's judgment and repentance and the kingdom of God, these very typical things that Jesus often talked about. In the middle of it, all of a sudden, someone from the crowd interrupts Jesus with some gory tale from the news. Galileans people from Jesus' home region of the Galilee, went to Jerusalem in a pilgrimage to present sacrifices in the temple. And the Roman governor, Pilate, slaughtered them, cut them down right there in the temple so that their blood was mingled in with the blood of their own sacrifices. Gruesome, ugly, brutal, A horrible story, but unfortunately not at all uncharacteristic of the stories that we hear about this man, Pilate. There's not really any reason given for this murder, this group murder, but the region of the Galilee was known as a place of both rebels and rabble-rousers. Many would-be messiahs came from Galilee with half-baked plans of uprisings and ways to take back Israel by force. Uprisings and conspirators from Galilee had been executed time and time and time again, not necessarily because they posed any real threat, but because they were made examples of. And Rome couldn't have anyone getting ideas. So we might understand... (laughs) In another gospel, when someone hears that Jesus is from Nazareth in the Galilee, why they would say, could anything good come from Nazareth? Galilee was known 
as a place of suffering that caused suffering for others as well. So why on earth would the crowd listening to Jesus bring up this story right now? I think there may be a couple of reasons. Jesus is from Galilee, and he's headed to Jerusalem, so someone from the crowd could have offered it as a cautionary tale. Jesus, did you know that Pilate is kind of out for Galileans right now, so you might hold off on your Jerusalem trip a little while longer? Maybe go and visit another time. Or it could be one of those things that the crowd would like him to weigh in on. So what do you have to say about this current event or crisis, Jesus? Not too much unlike we look to our leaders. What do you have to say about this mass shooting? What do you have to say about this um, unjust court ruling? What do you have to say about this latest atrocity? We want to hear what our leaders have to say about these things. But the way that Jesus responds to this story, I think, tells us a lot more about the asker or the commenter of the question. Because even without it being stated, Jesus understands the thought process behind this comment. Jesus, let's follow what we didn't read before we get to chapter 13 in Luke 12, Jesus is talking about judgment that will come without repentance. He's talking about the need to be aware of God's actions and be on the lookout even as crisis and calamity seem to be coming. So as they're listening, someone in the crowd puts two and two together and he says, oh yeah, I know, like, like the judgment that came on those Galileans who were murdered in the temple. Is that a good example of God punishing sinners, Jesus? Is this what you're talking about? And I don't exactly know what that person was hoping for, but Jesus doesn't mince words in shooting down his hypothesis. Jesus' response is clear and strong. Oh no, God had no part in that atrocity. And for good measure, Jesus adds another recent tragic event that had been circulating A tower in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, had collapsed. Some speculate it was also at the hands of Pilate because he was doing large aqueduct renovations. And so during the construction phase, 18 people were trapped inside and were crushed to death. So Jesus says, don't misunderstand what I'm saying about God's judgment. Neither a state-sanctioned act of violence nor tragic accidents are a part of God's response towards sinful behavior. One commentator sums it up this way. Jesus doesn't explain the causes of violence that nature and human beings regularly inflict upon unsuspecting people. He doesn't blame victims. He does not attempt to defend creation or the creator when why questions seem to be warranted. But in this scene, Jesus offers no theological speculation and inflicts no emotional abuse. And we can see, I think, both good news and bad news here. There's bad news because, in essence, Jesus is leaving us to conclude that death is inevitable. It has nothing to do with God's judgment. It's just 
part of the way the world works. And cruelty by an oppressive regime is actually to be expected. That's what cruel, violent regimes do. Violence in the name of stopping violence is not surprising. And mishaps with building materials are pretty commonplace, unfortunately. All of this can happen without needing God's judgment to explain it away. But this is good news too, right? Because we really don't want a God that operates in that level of cruel cause and effect, right? I mean, we don't want that, but I think it's also safe, I think it's okay to admit that sometimes even bad answers are preferable to having unanswered questions hanging out there. Because when you and I hear stories of natural disasters and tragedies, it leaves us terribly unsettled, doesn't it? When we hear of brand new powerful Boeing jets dropping out of the sky, leading hundreds, hundreds of people to immediate death, it's scary. When we see the gruesome details of 50 people shot in their own mosque in New Zealand out of racist, hateful motivation. When we watch massive flooding after a cyclone in Zimbabwe and Malawi and Mozambique where hundreds are left dead and thousands are left barely surviving without food or clean water or shelter, when we see flooding in Nebraska and Iowa that ruins farms and destroys economies, where livestock are drowned to death by the thousands, and grain fields are just wiped out, or when we watch the ongoing crisis in Venezuela and Central American countries that bring thousands of would-be refugees camped out at our southern border willing to do nearly anything for a hopeful future, it makes us a little bit nervous. Not to mention the grim stories of abuse and injustice that are happening right here in our midst, like the terrible stories I heard just this week of the darkness that continues at the Oklahoma County Jail. And when we hear these stories of tragedy and devastation and death, yes, we feel sadness, but let's be honest, we also feel some fear. And the question seems to come without even thinking about it. Maybe the questions arise in us even before we notice they are there. And it goes like this. If these terrible things could happen to those people... Could it also happen to me? Maybe they did something to deserve that, and I need to concentrate and work on what I can do differently than what they did so I can avoid the punishment that they got. Can I avoid their fate if I did something differently than they did? Did God punish those people, and can I escape that punishment? But then, what kind of God would do that? 
Is this God even good? Can this God even be trusted? And Jesus doesn't answer any of these questions. (laughs) But he does offer an invitation in response to the fears that we feel. (laughs) And he says, repent or you will perish too. Thanks. (laughs) Just the hopeful note of encouragement I was hoping for, Jesus. How is that remotely helpful? Isn't that just the opposite of what he just said? Again, these are good questions. In fact, I think they are perhaps the very questions that Jesus is hoping to raise in us. So hold on to them, okay? Keep those questions with you because we need to pause and take, take time to unpack this whole repentance idea. Repentance, which shows up hundreds and thousands of times in Scripture, the word metanoia in the Greek, is a big, big word in Scripture. And it's a big word for Jesus. It's kind of his word, actually. It's pretty much only holds religious meaning for us, and it often leads us to feel like some kind of like moral change is required. It's about behavior. And, um, but in its original uh, language, and to those who are hearing it for the first time, it had a very practical and down-to-earth and immediate meaning. It meant turning around, changing course, even changing your own mind. In the history of Israel, this was the word of the prophets. They continued to urge Israel, repent, turn back toward Yahweh, turn around, come back, change your mind, trust your God. And all throughout Luke's story, we see Jesus preaching repentance living repentance, inviting people to a new way of thinking and being. And he calls this new way the kingdom of God. And he himself is exhibit A of the kingdom in action. The kingdom is a place of the unexpected, of the utterly surprising and sometimes offensive upside-down world, but it is also the place of great joy. Captives are set free here, and there's good news for the poor here. There's freedom for the oppressed, and the blind can see, and the deaf can hear, and the paralyzed can even get up and walk. Outcasts are brought in, Sick people are healed. People who have been out of their minds are brought to wholeness and restored. Even dead children are brought back to life. The marginalized and the marginalized and maligned are welcomed as equals and as friends. And in this kingdom of God which Jesus says is among us even now, is a place of mercy and hospitality and justice and great love. 
It is a place of hope and expectation and desire, and it is not a kingdom of our own making. And so Jesus extends the invitation. Repent. Change your mind. Turn around and come back. Imagine a new way. Live like there is a kingdom of infinite goodness and unlimited power in your very midst. Take notice of it. Change. Enter in to this way that is not your own. And at the very same time, in the very same breath of this goodness, the kingdom is also a place of stark reality. Because while there is plenty of room for mercy, there is no room for compromise. And this is the sharp-edged Jesus that we see in Luke chapter 13. We would prefer one that's a little softer around the edges. But this is a Jesus who's made peace with not making everybody happy. And so he says it like it is. And the truth is that there is something very different at work outside of the kingdom. And so we are all invited in. We are all welcome. But should we choose to stay outside? Should we choose to go it alone? Should we choose to do it our own way? Well, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of our own making, have an expiration date. And so judgment eventually comes. And Jesus often uses the image of fire that burns away everything that is opposed to the way of God's kingdom. And so it's an interesting paradox that Jesus sets up. Repentance is not, Jesus says, something that we do to escape death, because death comes to us all, nor is it even something that we do to escape calamity, because we live in a world where those things happen. But repentance turning around and joining God's kingdom does save us from something. It saves us from the hopeless and meaningless and empty life and the finality of death that rules outside of God's kingdom. So, this suffering, when we encounter it, the floods, the airplanes falling out of the sky, the brutal dictatorships, the incurable sickness, and all the rest. What do we do with that if there's no way to escape it? Jesus offers this invitation. Let suffering remind us that our lives are short. That our lives are precious, but that they are vulnerable and fragile. So often we take this realization when we encounter suffering, whether in ourselves or others, and we try to fortify our vulnerability. We feel it, but we work against it. 
We judge others, we compare ourselves, and we engage in all of these false attempts, stacking up our own good works to create a barrier of self-protection. But Jesus says, that's not the solution. When suffering makes us feel fearful and vulnerable, it seems that Jesus would have us ponder the very same question so beautifully put to us by our poet, Mary Oliver, when she says, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Like Mary Oliver, Jesus was a poet. He hardly ever told it straight. He tells it slant, as Emily Dickinson would say. He counters questions not with answers, but with stories that provoke a different set of questions. And his parables tease the listeners, both then and now, into the kind of reflection that invites us to ponder. He positions stories together so that the stories themselves are in dialogue, and then we are invited in to listen and find ourselves in them. And so it should be no surprise that just as he raises more questions with his call to repentance, Jesus now launches into a story that seems to have nothing to do with what he just said. But of course, when we listen in closer, it does. It's a story about a tree in a vineyard that's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Fig trees are supposed to make figs, but this one is not. There's no sentimental value in this tree. It's taking up space and it's not serving its purpose. So the vineyard, the vineyard owner is running a business, not a tree charity, so it should be cut down. But it's not. And just like that, our questions about the whys and whens of suffering and judgment are reversed. Why is this tree permitted to take up space without having anything to show for it? Why did the owner give it more time? Who does that? Why does the gardener care about this tree so much? Will the tree bear fruit? Will it survive? But that Jesus, he doesn't tell nice, neat stories with a bow on top because this is a cliffhanger. It's not resolved. None of it is resolved. Who's the owner of the garden? We don't know. Who's the gardener in the garden? We don't know. Who's the tree supposed to be? We don't know. How does it end? We don't know. What we do know is that the story is unfinished, and it ends on both a note of hope and urgency. And as we ponder how it is to be continued, the dot, dot, dots, we're invited to come into the story, to look around and imagine it, and let it become personal. As I've studied this text over the last several weeks, I admit I have asked far more questions than I have written down answers. But there is something that I think we can know for certain in this text, and I've actually come to believe that it may be the most important thing, and that is that there is someone else working on this tree's behalf. The fig tree 
is not left to her own resources. There is a gardener, aware of her tenuous position, willing to go to bat to her. And this gardener has resources and know-how at his disposal that the tree cannot ever know or produce for herself. Not because she's a bad tree, but because she's a tree. She can't trim her own branches or dig up her roots or make manure to put on top of herself. She can do none of this. And it makes me think of all those captives set free and all those blind whose eyes had been opened and the lame who can now walk and the marginalized who are brought to the table all through no power of their own. And it makes me wonder, what if, what if repentance is more about noticing what someone else is doing than paying so much attention to what we are doing or not doing? What if the repentance that bears fruit, as John the Baptist preaches, What if the repentance that bears fruit comes when we stop trying so hard to make the fruit grow ourselves and we let a gardener take over? Of course, this is a whole lot easier for trees than for people because they don't have a choice. They're trees. And Jesus never gives us enough certainty to paint ourselves in a corner in any of his stories, nor to paint him a corner. So we need to hold this analogy loosely. But as I've sat with this text, I got to tell you, I can see myself in this tree. But I have a choice about whether or not I will allow the gardener's work. And I'm not saying that this is easy. I don't particularly want manure dumped on me, although I find it's around. (laughs) Nor do I want someone poking around my roots, digging things up or pruning my branches. And I have to admit that sometimes the gardening techniques can feel a lot like suffering, difficulty, confusion, wilderness, hunger, and thirst. So how are we to know when it's the gardener at work or when we're just facing the reality and the certainty of death and calamity in a broken world? My short answer is, I I don't know. But it might not matter all that much because I think that a really good gardener, of which I am not, but I know some, I think a really good gardener can use just about anything, whether the gardener put it there or not, to help the fruit to grow. But again... We're not trees. 
We're people. So if this is a picture of repentance, what on earth does that look like for us in our homes, in our streets, not just some made-up imaginary vineyard somewhere in Jesus' mind? I think maybe the simplest picture of repentance that I've seen this week has come in my two-year-old daughter (laughs) coming to me hopelessly tangled in her footy pajamas, (laughs) hands where the feet should be, (laughs) twisted up in all kinds of directions after 10 minutes of chanting, I'll do it myself, I'll do it myself, and yet comes to me going, Mommy, can you help me? Or... It's the teenager (laughs) admitting that her parents' rules actually offer a better way of life than doing it her own way and miraculously, humbly agreeing to receive their instruction. I met a pastor from Germany this week who told me his own story of how his promising startup business fell apart And yet, in the process, he recognized God's call into the vocation of pastor. His story didn't include any cataclysmic events or dramatic or immediate morality changes, but it looks like repentance to me, the way it worked for him. I think repentance even looks like the woman recently diagnosed with diabetes agreeing to adapt her life. To her doctor's new strict dietary recommendations, even if it means giving up her favorite foods. And I think it could also look like a successful CEO who, after decades of keeping up with the Joneses, decides that there's a better way to use his money and turns toward a life of humility and generosity, even if it means giving up some of his once prized possessions. This week I saw repentance in a woman who decided to turn around in the direction of hope and receive the help of others so that she could find freedom after decades of an abusive marriage. I've seen repentance lived out in friends who have willingly gone to rehab Because they're ready. They're so ready to be done with addiction. And they can't make it happen on their own. Repentance, remember, is turning around. It's changing our mind. It's entering into the kingdom. Noticing and giving space for someone else's actions on our behalf. And this is why. This is exactly why we practice communion together every single week. There is nothing that serves as a better reminder and a tangible reminder for us that our triune God Father, Son, and Spirit are at work for our good. We have been invited to receive what our God gives, but it requires repentance.
And this is what communion signifies. An act of repentance. A turning. A changing of our mind. A willingness to receive instead of doing it for ourselves. And so when we come to this table, we come ready to admit that we don't always know what's best for us and that we are willing to submit to and trust the one who does. We come aware that our life is fragile, that it's short, that it's vulnerable, and we've decided in our coming that joining our lives with his life is the best way that we can find to use our one wild and precious life. We come hungry and thirsty for what we cannot provide for ourselves. We come ready to receive that which we don't have the money to buy. We've chosen at 8th Street to receive communion weekly because it's incredibly important for all of the reasons that I've just said. But if we're not careful, it could become just another part of what we do on Sunday nights. But I want to say clearly for us tonight, friends, no one is pushing you to this table. So don't push yourself either. If tonight you are not at a place of repentance, a place of turning and receiving, I certainly do not want to be the one to push you past the necessary stages to get you there. So in a moment when we have an invitation to come forward, you are also invited to sit, to pray, to reflect. This is a time, whether you sit or whether you come. This is a time to respond to what we have heard. Either responding in prayer, asking that maybe we could get ready to find repentance, or we're ready to respond with repentance. and finding an act of repentance at this very table of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by the very ones he came to save, he was at a meal with his friends. And he took the bread, and he broke it. And he gave it to his friends, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he took a drink himself and he passed it to his friends and he said, this signifies my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so every time we eat this meal, we remember and we receive the self-giving love of Jesus. But this cannot be taken, friends. It can only be received. So I ask that in a moment when you come down this aisle to receive, you come with your hands cupped open. 
A server will put bread into your hands, and we invite you to dip it into the cup and to eat. Because we want no barriers here, our bread is gluten-free and our cup is non-alcoholic. If you can't make it down our aisle for any reason, just wave your hand at Justin and he will be happy to come and serve you. So now, friends, in a moment of both incredible hope, but also urgency, we are invited to respond to what we have heard. And as you are ready, I invite you to come to this table as an act of repentance. Come, friends. 